this patient. Um, would we employ V2 receptor antagonist or use hypertonic saline to optimize them uh, in this perioperative state, or do we choose a modality of CRRT versus dialysis? Now, <clears throat> I'll come back to this answer in a few slides um, and the rationale behind this, but there really is no specific right answer, but probably a safe and uh, precise approach would be to employ pre-dilution CBVH, um, the rationale for which I will walk through as we go through our slides. So, and this is, um, and one of the biggest worries that we have when we're faced with uh, hyponatremia management is always the development of osmotic demyelination, which uh, um, usually frightens most nephrologists. And especially when you're in a perioperative state where it requires uh, tight, uh, tight uh, control and correction of their hyponatremia. Now, what's um, hyponatremia? Osmotic demyelination has been described back in the 1950s, but what is depicted here is just MRI images uh, from, uh, from the literature. What we demonstrate in the top panel here is uh, proton density images, which shows cortical as well as um, subcortical areas of hyperintensity. And the lab next two images um, demonstrate basically cavitations in the thalamus as well as the uh, pons region on um, T1-weighted images. In this particular patient, he progresses to recover neurologic function, but on the very last image, we see a lot of cortical atrophy and thinning, which essentially results in long-term disability. But in order to avoid this complication, we all know that the rate of correction should generally not exceed more than 68 milliequivalents per liters per day in the setting of chronic hyponatremia without severe symptoms. Now, why do patients uh, develop osmotic demyelination? And that's what's illustrated in this um, uh, slide here. So in a normal, uh, the, the cells that are implicated in osmotic demyelination are astrocytes and oligodendrocytes, um, and which result, which undergo demyelination. In a normal state, the plasma osmolality intracellular and extracellular is very similar. Now in the setting of hyponatremia, because of the lower plasma osmolality, there's an influx of water into these astrocytes, which results in transient astrocytes and oligodendrocyte swelling. The brain adapts to this by secreting osmolites and electrolytes uh, out of the cells in an effort to uh, minimize this gradient, and therefore lets in net extrusion of water outside into the extracellular medium. Now, these osmolites are in the form of a uh, uh, form of um, um, uh, myoinositol, uh, taurine, and even potassium forming the major electrolyte. Now, when we rapidly correct hyponatremia, we disturb this osmotic balance, and now it reverses the osmolality inside of the brain is less than the extracellular environment, which results in net water movement outside of this astrocyte, which essentially results in the astrocytes shrinking, triggering off secondary inflammatory cascade, which essentially leads to the breachment of the blood-brain barrier and demyelination and death. Uh, sorry, demyelination and uh, astrocyte um, death. Now, osmotic demyelination is not very common, um, but as we, and from as reported in this uh, systematic review, um, literatures uh, that reported osmotic demyelination over the decades have significantly increased, not necessarily because of increased incidence, but just obviously because of better identification. But what is important to note is morbidity and mortality from osmotic demyelination probably has remained constant uh, over the years. Um, and this becomes particularly problematic in patients that are undergoing liver transplantation um, because um, they are more susceptible to complications of osmotic demyelination than patients who are not in, in the process of li receiving liver transplantation. So in this case series of about uh, 700 patients, 600 patients, um, 
those subjects who received liver transplantations and an osmotic demyelination, they had twice, they were twice as likely to die and about a one third more likely to be disabled, at least for this one year duration during the study and impaired recovery. Um, and the incidence of osmotic demyelination and liver transplant is more pronounced in as, as the severity of hyponatremia increases, as demonstrated in this um, um, observational study of about 2,100 patients, where uh, patients who developed osmotic demyelination with unitremia does occur, but it's very extremely low, um, uh, about 0.1% about incidence in this study at least. So amongst, um, while those patients who had hypo severe hyponatremia with a serum sodium of 125 and underwent liver transplantation, um, about 4.6% of them developed osmotic demyelination. And not surprisingly, the morbidity associated with osmotic demyelination was higher. Um, certain subjects are more vulnerable for hyponatremia, uh, particularly those with cirrhosis, presenting plasma sodium of less than 120, um, and signs of malnutrition and poor electrolyte balance. Um, which is frequently seen in patients who are undergoing liver transplantation. Um, so with that, one way of mitigating this is apply carefully applying osmotherapy. Um, and um, and there are, you, we could apply osmotherapy with the administration of hypertonic saline or um, using dialysis or extracorporeal techniques, which is what the focus of our talk today would be. But what is osmotherapy? Well, osmotherapy has been around since 1910s, but in a sense, it's... Um, it's the application of an osmotic agent in an effort to increase your serum osmolality in an effort to result in net water movement from the intracellular milieu to the extracellular fluid, which essentially results in shrinkage of brain cells um, and thus help reduce intracranial pressure. Um, it is common uh, misnomer to confuse osmolality and tonicity, but I don't think that is really much of a problem um, um, amongst nephrologists. Um, but um, to as in terms of uh, osmotherapy, it's been in existence since the 1910s, where um, it was demonstrated that the administration of hypertonic saline uh, basically prevented CSF withdrawal from lumbar cistern. But and then in, in, in another CAT experiment about a year or two later, um, a CAT uh, with, that had undergone craniectomy, they'd infused hypertonic saline. Um, and it was demonstrated that the convexity of the brain actually decreased and uh, the maximum brain convexity decreased within actually rapidly as quick as 15 to 30 minutes. Um, and then on the other side of uh, the coin, uh, hypotonic solutions were infused into animal models, in this particular case, rats, um, and that resulted in rupture of brain tissue. So this led to our understanding of uh, regulation of um, uh, cerebral space and um, cerebral pressures, and osmotic agents became part of a therapeutic armamentarium back in the 1920s. Um, the various different other options that were enlisted in my question earlier, unfortunately, uh, may not be that efficacious, uh, especially when you're in, in patients that you're uh, that that are that have oliguria or even anuria. Um, whether it's urea, use of diuretics or hypertonic agent, and then use of hypertonic agent obviously has other implications like expanding total body water, which may not be very advantageous, especially in somebody who's to undergo liver transplantation. So. Um, therefore, in patients with oliguria and anuria, and we need to carefully, con carefully um, correct their serum sodium, it becomes uh, one option used um, um, is to use uh, extracorporeal therapy. Um, and so the rest of my talk will revolve around how, what are the basic principles behind this and how can we safely apply this? Um, 
But before I go on to it, I just want to use this analogy of sort of explaining what is um, osmotherapy. It's very similar to mixing paint in very simplistic ways. So in this first panel, in this very first panel here, um, imagine a red um, container that has a red as a container that has red paint and it's running in this continuous loop. Um, and through the loop comes an, uh, we it's connected to another loop that has um, a container with yellow paint. Depending on the rate at which this yellow paint is coming into this um, red into this into this bigger loop and the size of the red uh, container, red painted container, um, the eventual admixture of both of this will result in a certain tinge of orange. Now, based on the size, the volume of the red paint, and then the rate at which the flow uh, of the yellow paint goes into this loop, we eventually get different shades of oranges, which is what's trying to be depicted between panel B, C, and then D. Uh, obviously, if we increase the rate of flow of this yellow paint into this major, into this bigger loop, that will result in a larger yellow um, uh, tinge to, to our eventual, eventually uh, dissipation of um, the red color in the larger bucket. Now, so what is, um, and we're just, we, and this analogizes to what we're trying to do with sodium um, in a larger, in a larger dialysis circuit. So the key components that make a difference is the rate of flow of the various things that flow into the circuit. So uh, specifically dialysate flow or replacement fluid rate and the ultrafiltration rate, as well as the total body volume that we're discussing, as well as the time on the circuit are the key parameters that determine um, uh, that determine the rate of flow, uh, sorry, the rate of change in color. So <clears throat> I would like to start off with, again, use this illustrative example to work our way through um, for the rest of the talk. So let's, we have a 70 year old female who presents with aneuric AKI whose presenting sodium is 96 milliequivalents per liter. Um, if we were to use four hours of standard hemodialysate with a, a say four hours of hemodia regular hemodialysis with a, with a sodium dialysate of 130, um, and based on the provided parameters, um, let's assume that the BUN decreases from 51 to 17 uh, milligrams per deciliter. So how much do we anticipate this to change the serum sodium? Do we expect to change in 10 millimolars, 8 millimoles, 12? 23 or none of the above. Um, uh, I would um, uh, have you guys think about the answer and then I will definitely return to um, this in about a few slides down the line. But the question is, if your, your, your BUN decreased from 51 to 17 um, and the gradient between the dialysate and the patient serum sodium was 34, how much do we anticipate the plasma sodium to be at the end of this four hours of treatment? So. To solve this problem, we first uh, need to appreciate uh, the relationship that, uh, that is depicted here. What I'm depicting here is the relationship between the initial concentration of urea uh, on, dia on dialysis over, time, over a period of time. What we can see is urea decays over time in an exponential fashion. And this relationship is depicted in, um, by this expression here in the white box, where um, we can see that the concentration of urea at any time t is dependent on the initial urea concentration at the rate at which it decays. And the rate at which it decays is this expression of uh, e to the minus kt over v, where 
Uh, e is the Euler constant, K is a constant that has units of mLs per minute, T is, has a uh, units of time, and V is the unit of volume in mL. Now, <clears throat> how do we analogize this to uh, sodium kinetics? Well, <clears throat> Um, this is the initial expression uh, of the decay of uh, urea reduction ratio, um, uh, which is depicted in the first line here. Now, if we were to solve for kT over V, we know that kT over V is the negative log of one minus urea reduction ratio. And urea reduction ratio is essentially this particular um, component of the equation that's depicted here, which is the difference between the urea concentration at time zero minus the urea concentration at any time t divided by the urea concentration at the start. Now, <clears throat> what I would like to illustrate here is that we know that the urea reduction ratio was about 67% at the end of this dialysis treatment because the patient's urea went from 51 to 17 um, divided by 51 yields a urea reduction ratio of 67%. Now, <clears throat> The patient's plasma sodium initially was 96 millimoles at the start of the therapy, and the gradient um, that the so that that the patient that that the that that we're that we're encountering in this model is um, the difference between the dialysate inlet uh, sodium concentration, which is 130, and the patient's serum sodium of 96, and this gradient is about 34 milliequivalents. Now. In this specified treatment time with a urea reduction ratio of 67%, uh, we expect only 67% dissipation in this gradient. So thus, um, 130 minus 94 times the urea reduction ratio will essentially yield the net change in your serum sodium at the end of this therapy, which turns out to be 119, um, which is probably, which is definitely way too fast than what we would want to happen in this clinical scenario. So. And uh, that is what I'm depicting here in this graph, uh, where we could see that the serum sodium initially, their rate of serum sodium is kind is fast, but it later slows down, which is which is very typical for urea reduction ratio as well. Now, if we were to plot the urea reduction curve against time, um, the curve that we see is very similar to the plasma sodium change that what that I had demonstrated on the earlier curve. So with this, visually, I think, and mathematically, we can conceptualize that um, the urea kinetics is very similar to plasma sodium kinetics, or sorry, sodium kinetics. So therefore, um, um, urea clearance is very similar to um, dialys the dialysis of sodium. Now, <clears throat> we know that uh, when we talk about clearance, clearance is the volume of blood completely cleared from a substance per unit time. But um, what dialysis refers to is the volume of blood that's completely equilibrated with fresh dialysate per unit time. Um, the key difference here is because sodium can actually move both from the dialysate into the serum and vice versa because of um, uh, sodium being present in the dialysate as opposed to in urea where we don't necessarily, where there is net movement of urea out into the um, dialysate compartment. And that's the key terminological difference between K-urea and um, dialysis of sodium. But essentially, um, they follow very similar kinetic principle. So <clears throat> with that in mind, um, uh, how do we analogize sodium kinetics to urea reduction ratio? So we do know that urea reduction ratio is one minus E to the negative KT over V. 
And we've now determined that uh, Ka urea is very similar to dialysis of sodium. So therefore, we can replace Ka urea to dialysis of sodium. So urea reduction ratio essentially equals 1 minus e to the negative dt over v. Um, earlier, I had shown what the uh, what the urea clearance equation, urea reduction ratio equation is, which is C times zero minus C at any time divided by the initial concentration of urea. Now, uh, similarly, um, you, since this equation here is um, um, the change in serum sodium, we can essentially call this the sodium reduction ratio or sodium adjustment ratio. Uh, which translates to the following, which is sodium at time zero minus sodium at any time t divided by the denominator, which is sodium at time zero minus sodium in dialysate. In urea reduction ratio, we do not have this particular component, like the urea in the dialysate is not there because there is no urea in the dialysate, but because there is sodium in the dialysate, that becomes part of the denominator. So uh, from a terminological perspective for the rest of the talk, this particular numerator component will be known as the sodium gradient, meaning the change in, sorry, uh, will be known as the change in sodium or delta sodium, and the denominator will be known as the sodium gradient, meaning the difference between the plasma sodium and the dialysate sodium. And the relationship between both of this and the urea reduction ratio forms a key principle in applying uh, sodium-based osmotherapy um, and determining various components of it. So if we are to rearrange this particular equation to solve for sodium at any time t, uh, we get this particular equation here. So sodium for any time t is dependent on the initial sodium concentration plus um, the sodium gradient, which is this denominator, and this particular component, which is the urea reduction ratio. Um, and that is what I'm depicting here is so just from just to go over terminologies and orientation. So if in, in a patient that's receive, receiving osmotherapy, um, they're, they have pre-dialysis blood flow at a certain rate and their pre-dialysate sodium is known as sodium pre. The difference between the dialysate sodium and the patient's serum sodium is known as the sodium gradient which is the gradient, uh, which is the difference between the dialysate sodium and the patient's sodium. Um, the difference between the patient's pre-dialysis sodium and then the post-treatment sodium is known as the change in serum sodium or delta sodium, um, which is sodium pre minus sodium post. So from this equation, we could easily surmise that sodium at the end of therapy or at any time t is dependent on primarily on urea reduction ratio, as well as the gradient between the dialysate and the plasma sodium. So these are the two big two determining factors for at the rate at which serum sodium changes during dialytic therapies. So um, I think we went over this math, but the answer to this question is essentially uh, is 23 because um, urea reduction ratio was 67%. And then the gradient was 34, which is 130 minus um, 96. Um, and 2 thirds of 96 becomes 23. So the sodium change will be 23 plus 96, which yields 119. <clears throat> now, so this uh, also illustrates uh, the problems that we have uh, in applying osmotherapy with different dialytic therapies. So 
The bottom line dotted line here demonstrates what should ideally happen if we were to apply osmotherapy in a controlled setting with precise up, um, uh, with precise changes in serum sodium that results in nothing more than six to, 10, six to eight millimoles per 24 hours. Now, if we were to use regular hemodialysis, because the urea reduction ratio is high, um, we would expect the rate of serum sodium correction to be very fast. And this straight line, dark line here represents um, what we, excuse me, um, is what we would expect to see if we were to use standard eight hours of uh, prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy or SLED, where <clears throat> even though the urea reduction ratio is lower than intermittent hemodialysis, it's still sufficiently fast to result in rapid serum sodium correction within, uh, within 24 hours. Now, if we were to use CRRT, even though our 24, even though our urea reduction ratio is a lot low and we only achieve about 60% over 24 hours, because the replacement fluid sodium concentration is 140, the gradient can be very large, especially when the patient's serum sodium is starting at 90. Um, that can result in rapid correction of serum sodium as well. Therefore, um, this is just another um, graph to illustrate that we, we need to both adjust uh, the adjust sodium adjustment ratio as well as the urea reduction ratio for us to be able to safely apply um, osmotherapy. So how do we go about doing it? Um, and um, what are the different principles that we need to be aware of is what, I'm, what I would like to illustrate with some case-based examples. Um, so let's take this 90 kilogram patient who was initiated on pre-dilution CVVH for AKI stage three and is presenting sodium is 120. And these are the defined CRT parameters that we're using with a blood flow of 300 mLs per minute, pre-dilution replacement fluid of three liters per hour and his ultrafiltration is set at 100 mLs per minute. Um, and I'm illustrating that. Um, so if the BUN is 60 milligrams per deciliter and the and at time zero and his BUN is expected to be 32 at the end of 24 hours of therapy, the question is what should we adjust his replacement fluid uh, to ensure safe correction? So how do we go about determining that? So in this diagram here, I've illustrated the um, predefined CRIT parameters. Um, now, I am using particularly pre-dilution CVVH in all of these illustrations, but the concepts applies to other modalities of CRIT as well, but it will just require fine-tuning of um, some of the, uh, for some of the um, equations that we'll be discussing shortly. So to recap, we have blood flow that's flowing at 300 mL per minute. If the patient's hematocrit is 33%, the plasma flow is 200 mL per minute. The patient's pre-treatment sodium is 120, and we're using a replacement fluid of 140. Um, and um, his replacement fluid is running at a rate of three liters per hour, which translates to 50 liters per minute. So we have the sodium gradient of about 20. The question is, um, how, what would the rate of, what would the sodium be at the end of 24 hours of therapy? So this is how we go about um, um, identifying how solving this problem. But the first step to this is to first identify the urea reduction ratio from your CRT prescription dose. 
So we're used to identifying urea reduction ratio and KT over V on standard intermittent hemodialysis. Um, but um, when we generally do, when we prescribe CRT, we're more used to this formula in the center, which basically um, is our dialysis prescription dose for CRT. But uh, we can certainly calculate urea reduction ratio from um, prescribed dialysis dose. How, do we, how is that? Um, well, in standard pre-dilution CVDH, your prescribed dialysis dose is defined by this equation, which is your plasma flow multiplied by the ratio of your replacement fluid and ultrafiltration divided by a sum of your plasma flow as well as replacement fluid. Now, this is your clearance, K. So we know that um, urea reduction ratio is 1 minus E to the KT over V. So you solve for this, and D becomes from D is derived from this equation. So essentially, if we use Watson volume or total body water times 50% uh, or 60% as the V in E to the negative DT over V, we get our urea reduction ratio for this defined CRT prescription parameters. The other thing we need to be aware of is the relationship between urea reduction ratio as well as um, the sodium gradient and the sodium um, uh, change. So that is something I've uh, mentioned earlier, but I'm going to go over one more time. Um, so we do know that the change in sodium is defined as your sodium pre-dialysis minus your, sorry, your sodium at the end of treatment minus your pre-sodium dialysis. The sodium gradient is defined as sodium in concentration in your replacement fluid and your pre-dialysis and the difference from your pre-dialysis sodium. Um, and uh, based on our urea kinetic or sodium kinetic modeling equation um, earlier, this is what we've derived, what the relationship between sodium at any time T is, uh, how it's related to your urea reduction ratio, as well as your sodium adjustment ratio is what's depicted here in this bottom equation. Uh, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> if we rearrange urea reduction ratio, if we solve for urea reduction ratio of this equation, we get that urea reduction ratio is your sodium post minus sodium pre divided by sodium replacement fluid minus sodium pre. And this is what I demonstrated earlier is basically urea reduction ratio is uh, determined by your change in serum sodium divided by the gradient uh, of so of uh, sodium concentration between your dialysate or replacement fluid and your serum sodium. So key principle, first thing is to derive urea reduction ratio based on prescribed dialysis dose, which is for pre-dilution CVVH is derived from this equation. And then um, if we, and then um, the next important thing is to identifying that the urea reduction ratio is equal to um, the change in serum sodium and your sodium um, gradient. So applying this on a, in, in a clinical perspective um, for, for in, to solve this problem, we can go through one of two methods. Um, method two is what we stand, what we use commonly, at least in our clinical setting. But um, I'm going to start off by uh, method one, because this may not, method two may not be feasible in all um, hospitalized setting for the following reason. So <clears throat> ideally, um, so we do know that CRT um, replacement fluid or dialysate come in 
um, predefined so serum um, sodium concentrations and volume. Um, it would be very easy. It would be very nice if we could adjust the replacement fluid concentration, but not. It's not feasible in all institutions, especially when the volume is not very high. Um, to have a standardized process becomes tricky and error prone. So unfortunately, in those scenarios, we will have to work with uh, existing um, existing bags without modifying them. So um, occasionally you can get customized uh, replacement fluid, but for most practical purposes, the commonly available commercial solutions are so with uh, commercial solutions have sodium concentration of 140 or maybe 130. Um, but anything outside of it requires customization. So to if we if we are not able to manipulate our replacement fluid, then um, then method one uh, basically is one way of addressing the problem at hand. Here, we're starting with a pre-specified replacement fluid sodium concentration. We would manipulate our urea reduction ratio in order to get to get a defined sodium, a particular sodium at the end of treatment. So, and this is how we go about doing it. So we start off by prescribing our CRT dose. And then based on that, we will compute our urea reduction ratio. And I will illustrate that with this numerical example. So in a patient who's on CRT with the following prescription parameters, his blood flow is defined at 300 and he has a hematocrit of 33. Replacement fluid is running at a rate of 50 mLs per minute with ultrafiltration at three mLs per minute. The one thing I do want to uh, emphasize is when we're doing these calculations, the, we should be cognizant of the units. They should all be mLs MLs or a minute or MLs per minute, um, because can, normal convention, we, I think we frequently mix a liters per hour is our normal CR, uh, normal convention of describing these flow rates. So in, with this particular prescription, what is our year reduction ratio? So we do know that plasma flow is uh, 200 and our, our prescribed dose of dialysis would be 200 multiplied by 53 divided by 250 which yields um, a prescribed dose of 42.2 mL per minute. Um, and then we plug it into one minus e, negative E to the KT over V, which essentially will give our urea reduction ratio of 78%. So if our urea reduction ratio is 78%, and if we were to run dialysis, uh, we were to run pre-dilutional CVBH for 24 hours, um, and the patient's uh, treatment sodium, uh, pre-treatment sodium was 120, and let us assume that we only have a replacement fluid so uh, that has a sodium concentration of 130, what do we expect the soda serum sodium to change? Well, um, we've discussed earlier that urea reduction ratio equals the so change in serum sodium divided by sodium gradient. So we basically solve for a sodium uh, at the end of treatment for sodium post. Um, according to what's illustrated over here. And we get that the sodium at the end of 24-hour therapy with these prescription parameters will be 127. Um, therefore, the net change in your serum sodium will be about 7.8, which will be a safe um, rise in serum sodium over 24 hours. Um, and just to illustrate again, uh, urea reduction ratio, if we were to calculate the urea reduction ratio just based on the serum sodium, uh, just based on the sodium changes, uh, will yield 78%, uh, just as it would be if we were to calculate it based on our prescribed dose. So um, just this is just to illustrate that urea reduction ratio is equal to the ratio of change in serum sodium over 
sodium adjustment ratio. Um, and in this particular um, um, uh, model, um, the patient's serum sodium was gradually corrected at that at, 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 at a rate of uh, 7.8 milliequivalents over 24 hours, which resulted in overall safe sodium correction. Now, <clears throat> if we were to identify or if we were to know what, a, what the patient's serum sodium would be at any particular time t, um, it's the exact same equation, but we just have to use um, 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 uh, replaced 1,000, uh, 1, uh, whatever time frame we would want to know what the patient's serum sodium is, we just replace T by that in minutes, will yield the sodium, um, uh, will yield what the expected serum sodium should be at this particular prescription parameters. Now, uh, what we generally do at our institution and probably at many other places is rather than, um, is rather than uh, adjust the urea reduction ratio, um, we can adjust the so replacement fluid sodium concentration as it's more practical because if we know that the replacement fluid ratio is reduced sufficiently low, we know that the serum sodium is not going to rise anything faster than that. So, but for that, um, in order for us to identify what the replacement fluid sodium concentration should be, we should still go through a number of steps. Um, it would be easy to just um, use a difference of 10, uh, the gradient of 10. But, um, you know, if we wanted to be more precise, we could go through the following steps. Here, what we do is first, we define what our sodium should be at the end of 24 hours of therapy. And in most cases, we do not want it to be more than eight milliequivalents over 24 hours. So therefore, the change in serum sodium is predefined to be eight. Now we go about calculating the urea reduction ratio, which, and then using that, we will identify what the replacement fluid sodium concentration should be for this particular um, uh, dialysis prescription. And then we will then adjust the replacement fluid accordingly to deliver um, osmotherapy in a controlled manner. And for that, um, so we've already defined what the, what the change in sodium should be, which is about eight milliequivalents. The next step is to calculate the urea reduction ratio, very similar to what we did in method one. So, in this particular example, these are the parameters that we're working with for a blood flow of 300 with replacement fluid rate of 41.7 mLs per minute with an ultrafiltration rate of two liters per, uh, sorry, two mLs per minute. So we, ident we first have to calculate uh, the dose of dialysis, um, which will be the following. And then um, we derive the urea reduction ratio with the following equation, which turns out to be about 70% in this illustration. Now, with the urea, with now the, with the knowledge of urea reduction ratio being 70%, we know the numerator in this equation is, we've already defined it to be uh, eight or 10 in this particular illustration that I have here. And now all we're doing is solving for the sodium concentration gradient, basically eventually solving for the replacement fluid sodium concentration. And that comes out to 134. So if we are to adjust, the replacement fluid sodium concentration to 134 milliequivalents uh, per liter and um, apply the prescription parameters as demonstrated on the earlier slide, this will result in your serum sodium changing not by anything more than 10 milliequivalents over 24 hours. Um, and this is just um, rearranging the same equation for us to, if we were to frequently change the replacement fluid at any specified time t, this would be um, the equation that we could use um, to derive uh, uh, to derive what the replacement fluid 
sodium should be at any specified time t. And <clears throat> so in summary, there are two ways of approaching this. We could either work with a predefined replacement fluid and adjust our ultra our euro reduction ratio accordingly to ensure that the sodium uh, doesn't um, rise too uh, rapidly. Alternatively, a more um, a practical um, approach is to define what you would want the sodium to be at the end of a particular uh, time frame of therapy, and then adjust the replacement fluid. Now, how do we go about replacing the adjustment fluid? There are a few different ways. And again, that is dependent on what is available at every institute. But um, this is what we commonly do in our institute, the first two methods. Um, and uh, normal commercially available um, CRNT replacement fluid or dialysate come in five liter uh, bags each uh, and with a sodium concentration of 140 milliequivalents. Um, and what we can do is simply add um, simply add uh, sterile water or D5 to dilute this down to a desired concentration. So let's say that we would want to dilute 140 milliequivalents down to 120. Um, adding 830 cc's to this five liter bag will essentially uh, dilute it down to 120 milliequivalents per liter. How do we figure this out? This is based on simple mass balance. The overall um, sodium total sodium content in both of these solutions are gonna be exactly the same. Um, so in order to identify what the volume that we need to add to this, um, um, to this commercial solution, we could employ this formula here. Um, and, um, and basically V2 is the total volume of this entire bag after adding sterile water or D5. Uh, sodium-2 is the final sodium concentration in this altered solution. Sodium-1 is your sodium concentration in the commercial solution, which is usually 140, and V1 is the volume in the commercial solution, which is 5 liters. So solving for V2 will give us 5.83 liters, so meaning we add 830 cc's to this 5-liter bag to yield a net sodium concentration of 120 in this replacement fluid. Now, um, we can; these bags tend to hold a lot, but generally they become very heavy when you add excess volume. So arbitrarily, at least in our institution, we've picked 700 cc's as the cutoff. And if we need to dilute it, if we need to add more than 700 cc's to dilute it down to under 120, then we follow the following methodology. You, we drain out a specified volume and then replace that with, um, with um, D5 or um, sterile water. Now, um, again, this is how do we figure that out? That's also based on simple mass balance, but for the sake of time, without going through how we get through this, this is, this is the formula that you could employ to figure out how much uh, um, hypotonic solution you will need to add into your um, pre-existent uh, replacement fluid to dilute it down to a desired concentration. Um, in terms of going through the terminology, Vx is your the volume that needs to be added to this original replacement fluid. Um, V1 is the volume, original volume of your replacement fluid. Sodium 2 is your final sodium concentration and sodium 1 is your um, 
sodium concentration in your initial solution. So in this particular example, where we would want to dilute a five liter 140 milli equivalents uh, solution down to 120 milli equivalent, but maintain the same volume, uh, we get that we need to drain about 710 cc's and replace that with either sterile water or D5 to uh, eventually achieve this final concentration. <clears throat> but unfortunately, this may not be possible everywhere because this requires the help of your pharmacy, especially your compound pharmacy. Um, and of course, the process, may, since this is something that uh, we're doing off market, you obviously need to ensure that we have uh, proper uh, procedures in place. And if we don't do this frequently, some it's not always the safest thing to do. And some hospital pharmacy, unfortunately, don't have the capability of doing this. So in that scenario, what can we do is the following. Um, so let us assume that we would want to, we have um, a replacement fluid, commercial replacement fluid of five liter bags that has 140 milli equivalent. Um, we would want to run a replacement fluid at 120 milli equivalents per liter. Uh, concentration, sodium concentration, the total volume, and let's assume that we want to run it at three liters per hour. That's the rate at which we want to run this replacement fluid. So because our pharmacy isn't allowing us to do it, we're going to call this the virtual fluid. Now, instead of because we can't, um, we cannot um, dilute down the or the commercial fluid down to this, what we can do is we can mimic um, uh, that by just running a parallel infusion of D5 um, it can be run pre-filter, post-filter, ideal to be done post-filter, um, but it just, it, it, whichever, either one doesn't necessarily make too much of a difference in terms of your sodium kinetics. So <clears throat> how do we go about it is the following. Um, again, I'm, for the sake of time, I will not go over the derivation of it, but this is the, um, it's again based on mass balance. And um, this is the overall equations that we need to be familiar with if we are to derive the specific rate at which a replacement fluid needs to be run at and a D5 needs to be run at to, um, which will eventually equate to a virtual fluid that runs at you know, our predefined um, rate as well as has a, so has a predefined sodium concentration. Um, and uh, to illustrate this, I will use a numerical example of the same formula. So let's say that we have a virtual solution that we want to run at a rate of three liters per hour. The, let's say the final replacement fluid that we want to run at a diluted con sodium concentration of 120 needs to be run at three liters per hour. For that, we will need to run a D, uh, we will run, need to run D5 at a certain rate and um, the commercial replacement fluid at a certain rate. So that um, is based, and this is, this is the derivation of that. Uh, this is an application of the equation that I had shown on the earlier slide. Um, basically, we identify that the replacement fluid needs to run at two and a half uh, liters per uh, hour, while D5 will need to infuse at about 400 cc's per hour to give us this virtual uh, fluid rate. Um, a simple way of thinking about it is as follows. So we, this is what we started with. Uh, we had a five liter solution with 140 milli equivalents. What we wanted to do was run uh, a 5.83 liters of, um, of solution that had 120 milli equivalents per liter of sodium at a rate of three liters per hour. Instead of, since we were not able to do that, what we did was we, ratio, we ratioed out 
um, this, this virtual solution and we separate it into a D5 infusion and the, and the standard replacement fluid. Um, and we basically portioned it out to ensure that the net flow rate is about three liters per hour, um, which is what we wanted to do with this virtual solution. So no matter what we do with our, with our calculations and uh, adjustments, unfortunately, there are times when we don't necessarily achieve our target. A lot of that boils down to things that we're not considering in our sodium kinetic modeling. What are those things? Well, for one, we are thinking of this as, a, as, a, as a, we're not accounting for ongoing generation and ongoing losses. Most patients in the intensive care unit um, end up receiving a lot of hypotonic fluid as well as uh, free water losses as well, which we don't necessarily always, which we obviously are not accounting for in this model. So that's why it requires us to serially follow um, serum chemistries as we're applying um, CRT for serum sodium correction. So um, in general, following them every four to six, four to eight hours based on how tightly we're controlling their serum sodium is um, uh, going to be very important. And that's why also readjusting our targets based on, um, based on whether they're achieving our goals or not is also important. And the sooner we readjust our targets, the more likely we're able, we're, we're going to get them to our targets um, in, in, in a safe manner. So other other details that we that can result in uh, missed targets include, you know, downtimes of your CRT, um, and of course this is where use of anticoagulation comes into a play. Um, but if we're using citrate bed anticoagulation, that also has implications on sodium kinetics, um, and that um, I haven't gone on gotten into the details of, but those um, those also have roles in those also uh, play a part in. Um, in 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 uh, in osmotherapy, um, and lastly, um, inaccuracies in calculations, et cetera, make a big part. Uh, one of the other biggest determinant in um, in us not deliver in us not reaching our therapeutic goals is um, mispredicting the total body water. Um, weight inaccuracies and not accounting for gains in uh, total body water frequently are problematic. Um, in general, um, we could use CRT-based, sodium-based osmotherapy in patients who have chronic hyponatremia without severe symptoms. Um, ideally, they need to be anuric or oliguric for this model to be very effective, but we can certainly apply this in non-oliguric state, but that requires consideration of uh, urinary losses as well as other ongoing generations. Now, the effective weight per se doesn't always have too much of a difference in overall sodium uh, changes. Um, and that's just demonstrated in this MathCAD-based model um, where all other treatment parameters are held constant um, in a male who has a total body water of 48 liters versus a female who has 31 liters, the net difference in your eventual sodium at the end of uh, treatment time is usually not a whole lot. Is in a, well, if your total body water is off by 20%, your changes, your difference in sodium is only about one to two milliequivalents in a 24-hour period. But what becomes a significant issue is ultrafiltration. So as we know, most patients in our ICUs tend to gain volume very quickly for various different reasons. But when we forget to apply ultrafiltration when we're, when we're doing sodium-based osmotherapy, that can have more um, long-term consequences. Um, and that's what I'm trying to demonstrate over here is 
So what we've done is in a model, in, we've modeled to see what would be the net gain or loss of sodium in patients with when we apply ultrafiltration versus when we don't apply ultrafiltration. So in this uh, illustration, in a patient whose serum sodium was 124, um, uh, sorry, was 116 at uh, end of 24 hour of therapy, their serum sodium is 124. Um, we, um, we, 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 when we don't apply any ultrafiltration, they tend to gain about 30, 384 millimoles of sodium. Now that doesn't matter over a day, but if we're gonna do CRT over several days, that can add up, especially in patients who are vulnerable for uh, volume overload. Now, if we were to apply just 150 cc's an hour, we can actually make a decrement in their overall serum sodium, despite us raising, uh, sorry, we can make an important decrement in their total body sodium, despite us actually increasing their serum sodium uh, concentration. So. Um, and this is another mathematical model that uh, is currently in press uh, for, in, in a paper that we that we are that we have uh, submitted. Uh, but what we are trying to demonstrate here is in patients that are going osmotherapy that are undergoing osmotherapy, different rates of ultrafiltration uh, can make a uh, important uh, difference in their total body sodium uh, balance. So um, zero ultrafiltration can result in, on an average, and when you change your serum sodium by eight milliequivalents per day in standard individuals um, of about 380 millimoles a day, and tend to gain about 300, 380 millimoles over a 24-hour period. Now, uh, ultrafiltration of about three liters can result in net even sodium balance, and then more ultrafiltration results in neg negative sodium balance. And that's just something to be aware of. So now <clears throat> doing all these calculations and stuff can be very cumbersome and error prone, especially when we're, um, you know, when, when, when our trainees are being faced with uh, seeing numerous patients on their console services. So to ease things up, we've had this online, um, calculator that allows them to manipulate these various different parameters that we've done and it provides them with uh, um, outputs to adjust the replacement fluid as well as CRT parameters to ensure that they, um, um, you know, this is an error-free process. Um, and this aid also provides a visual representation. So this is just something that we've developed to allow our, our, our um, uh, trainees to utilize as well as they understand these principles. So in summary, um, <clears throat> so in general, when we are correcting hyponatremia, we do not want to exceed more than 68 milliequivalents over 24 hour period. Urea reduction ratio um, is very important as well as the net sodium gradient are the two key parameters that we have to pay attention to as we're prescribing. Um, and although um, we are, these are tightly, these are very precise mathematical model. There are various other factors that are not that are that are not incorporated into these models. So therefore, lab parameters do need to be monitored frequently just to make sure that we're delivering these therapies safely in general. So with that, I would like to conclude my talk and then um, answer any questions that you guys would have. Uh, can I have the first question? Yes, please. Can you, can, yeah. Uh, this is Chia Rong Huang. I am the division director. I know Jerry e very well. He highly recommended we invite you to give this talk, you know. And I want to thank you very much for giving this a very intellectual and, and a very uh, detailed uh, uh, presentation. And some of these uh, questions, I guess, you know, we can, you know, uh, 
And if you can uh, uh, share your talk to Ben Griffin, he probably can go over with our uh, Pharaoh some other time. But very practically, I want to leave the Pharaoh with some kind of guidance, you know. So the uh, in we talking about uh, the 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 uh, uh, rising sodium with the dialysis with someone with a very low sodium. We also need to take into account at the same time we also low in uh, urea. And urea in this setting is also more active, you know, otherwise we don't have a, a dialysis demyelination syndrome, right? So I think the, uh, we are setting up a tableau to run sledge, you know. And I think the most practical way, maybe when you have someone with sodium like 120 or 110, you know, and just run a, a sled with sodium uh, 130, overrunning the A-out also, with a KT overview of 0.7, which urea reduction ratio will be about 50%, uh, right? So you talk about the gradient of 130 to let's say to 110, 20, the urea reduction ratio uh, of 50%. So the gradient of 20 will go up to 10 over AR. At the same time, you could drop urea by let's say 60 to 30, like give you another 30 drop of urea divided by 2.8. That's a 10 point, which equivalent to sodium of five point, right? So you look at 10 minus uh, five. So within that simple guideline, you would never go wrong or rarely go wrong, right? So instead of worry about, and then uh, obviously this is very important. I think that as a nephrology, we want to be really know our number. I want our fellow to really know how to calculate this. But in the practical standpoint, when you run Tableau in ICU, I would recommend ride an eight hour sled with sodium 130 with a target KD overview of 0.7, right? Uh, that's my first point. The other is when you run a C, uh, CBVHD, uh, can we just simply say, take a number like uh, 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 run 15% of uh, post-field replacement fluid with D5W. And then like you say, then already check for the first few hours, make sure the rate of rise is not uh, uh, exceeding the whatever out of expected because so many things going on, like you say. I mean, uh, with UF and with other fluids going in and out uh, with the patient from the primary team, you know, and so, so, uh, given there are certain things uh, really uh, uh, not uh, insensible losses, you know. So I would like to, that's what I typically I would do. You know, I would just say run a 15% of uh, uh, post-filter replacement through the D5W and adjust uh, hourly for the first few hours. And once you get the, the heck uh, uh, of the direction, and you can adjust up and down with D5W and then, uh, that's, that's my simple approach without going through, you know, with 30, 40 patient cancer to all the calculation. And that would be my approach. I'd like your comment on that, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Dr. He's also mentioned a lot about you as well. So <clears throat> I agree. Um, there certainly are uh, uh, ways that we can do this more efficiently. Um, there, but it applies for most clinical scenarios, but then um, it may not be necessarily applicable in extremes. Um, and that's where I think perhaps when 
um, having having an idea, having you know the working knowledge of this might be helpful. For instance, in the sled situation, on if there could be scenarios where you know where you may want to even even after adjusting for urea reduction ratio of under fifty percent, the gradient might be just too high. Let's say in a patient presenting with a serum sodium of less than hundred, for instance, right? Uh, unfortunately, the dialysate sodium cannot be uh, lower to anything more than one thirty on at least on most uh, Fresenius and even in Tableau machines. Um, Actually, I remember in Tableau, they were not even lowering it under 135 until recently. Um, initially, they weren't even able to do that. So that, that, that those are times, those are extreme circumstances, I think, when, um, when um, having knowledge of this would be helpful. But I agree, there are certainly ways of doing uh, this. And for instance, uh, some institutions basically have two different stock solutions, um, 140, 125, and they use the 125 milliequivalent dialysate for, um, you know, for lower sodiums, and then they just work their way around both of that without manipulating it. So it's feasible, uh, and it works for almost most clinical scenarios, but I, and probably it's just the extremes. And if we want it to be very precise, I think that's where this all this would matter. Right. Our pharmacy doesn't allow us to do to, to, uh, uh, custom, you know, the, the formula, you know. So, so uh, we have only uh, one uh, 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 solution, you know. So, so I guess the, the running a post filter, a D5W at a certain rate and a, a frequent check uh, will be the, in the setting, like you say, when the, the sodium, uh, pre-dialysis sodium is less than 110 or less than 100, you probably want to just do CRRT and then do the post filter, the uh, D5W to adjust for that, you know. Uh, so is 15% of uh, D5W to the replacement fruit is that uh, I look at looking at your calculation. They say you want to run three liter replacement fruit out of that about 0.4 liter. So that's about uh, 15 or 20 percent of. Uh, is that something you you like your comment on that? Because that's what I've been typically uh, uh, doing, you know. Uh, yeah, so 15% liters uh, comes out to be about 450, right? Mm -hmm. Which uh, I think on the illustration um, that I use, it comes fairly close Hi, to it. Um, if I can go back up a few slides, um, which is exactly what we get here, right? Um, so 430 is what it is. So your 15% uh, is actually pretty close to that. Um, so yeah. Hi. You're in my way. Hi, Marisa. It's uh, the the audio. It seems to be funny. You are busy now. You want to say something? I'll ask a question in, in the meantime. Um, thank you very much for that talk. As I'm uh, John, I'm one of the one of the junior faculty. Um, as usual, I can't follow the math as quickly as Chao Long, but um, you know, I think one thing that um, isn't incorporated uh, is is the ongoing water losses, um, with, uh, urinary water losses. And I was wondering if you, I mean, you've modeled so many other things with so much detail. I'm wondering if your if your calculator or, or other you've modeled. How to incorporate those because those can be dynamic, obviously. 
Um, thanks, John. Yeah, so we certainly have modeled that and we have uh, model, mo um, we modeled generation losses, um, even the addition of citrate, all of those have been modeled as well. Um, and um, so the details of those are in, so we have a paper in Kidney360 earlier from last year, which uh, doesn't go into the, all the depths of it, but briefly mentions it, but uh, we've modeled it and we've submitted another paper that should be out soon and I'd be happy to share it with your group. But yes, certainly the, that's been, um, that's been um, something that we've uh, worked with as well. Now, generally urinary losses aren't very high obviously, because most of these patients are oligoeric and uric. We have a very interesting situation we encounter here that's very unique to Henry Ford is our transplant surgeons, um, when they're doing liver transplantation, even in the setting of uh, normal renal function, they like the safety of CRRT in patients who have hyponatremia. Um, so in those scenarios, um, you know, that model will be very helpful, but um, it's just, yeah, just something that I thought might be interesting. So is um, is ultrafiltration, uh, what's the most common unmeasured variable here that you think is responsible for differences between how you model it in patient care and what you actually see when you check the labs? Is um, usually the addition of hypotonic solutions um, in, 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 in patients who are critically ill. So we tend to sort of under-recognize that. Uh, a lot, um, and a lot of them aren't necessarily very apparent in the way they're represented in the medical records as well. Um, so that is that is usually the biggest component. So I think a few weeks ago, we had a situation where um, a patient was getting close to um, two liters of hypotonic uh, fluid without even us, uh, anyone realizing it um, because of different ways medicines are constituted and represented on the MAR. And by the time we figured it out, it was like two or two days or so before we can uh, account for them. Thank you. I had a, a couple of questions as well, if you don't mind. I know we're getting past one o'clock. Hopefully you don't mind sticking on a couple extra minutes, but. Oh, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, Melissa and I have actually used these a lot of these same formulas because uh, we found them in Dr. Yi's uh, publications. <laughs> so we kind of stole them from him in the literature, but we kind of use this modeling. I don't know if I can, I can show it, but basically like kind of like your um, internet uh, calculator where it'll say, you know, if you use these settings, what the, what the output will be in a certain number of hours and taking that and allowed the users to input that in like a simulation. And then they move forward eight hours in the future and then they revise their formulas or whatever and try to work through a case in that way. Um, so I don't know if that would be something that we could talk about later at some point, but that might be interesting to kind of see if you guys have done anything on the education side with this on your fellows and kind of what um, what you're doing with this in, in that sense. Yeah, I know that I'm so happy to hear that. I'm sure Dr. E would be happy to hear as well that uh, you guys have um, utilizing this, especially in the educational program. So yeah, and we tend to do this and we tend to recalibrate um, what one of the things that we, uh, as we are training our fellows that we tend to do is we, this is always a starting point. And that's one of the reasons why we have the modeling graphs and things like that for them to have an understanding of what the expected trajectory is and the various different things to uh, think about. Um, and um, we don't, 
we don't emphasize them to do these manual calculations and that's why we it's more about understanding the concepts um and that's where i think we tend to focus them in terms of our training but um i think what you're describing is probably very worthwhile um from an educational perspective uh to be sort of maybe more uh, dispersed more in other training programs as well so um uh, that definitely has a lot of educational value and how often do you actually use the sodium modeling set i find that we don't actually it doesn't come up all that often in our practice but do you are you using it like pretty frequently uh, yeah, between, uh, it seems like it happens every time I'm, I'm on call, but uh, it happens uh, on average, um, you know, once or twice a month. Okay. Um, and then we also do the reverse of this, which I didn't go into it, which is um, hyper, which is induced hyper, hypernatremia, um, you know, for patients who have cerebral edema, et cetera. So if I was to include that into it as well, then we probably encounter this in about two to two, two to three times a month on average. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, so I don't know if this would be of interest, but I published a case report, just a little one, a few years ago, looking at using these formulas to calculate basically what the volume of distribution was in a person who was having a stroke who weighed 25 kilos, who was an anorexic person, basically. We found that if you use these calculations, her um, volume of distribution was like 55 kilos, which is what you would expect based on her height, basically. I looked back then to see if I could do this to determine if overweight patients, if they have a volume of distribution uh, that's more related to their actual weight versus their adjusted weight versus their ideal body weight. And I couldn't find enough cases to do it. But I don't know, is that something that, um, I don't know, maybe we could talk about doing something like that? that? That would be great. I think I have come across and I apologize. I didn't recognize it was uh, you, but... Um... I did, yeah, I did. so we definitely, that, that'd be something that we could definitely, uh, you know, would be amazing if we can uh, work, 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 work on something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just throw more research ideas at you. So you could go back theoretically and figure out the urea production rate, right? Using this, and uh, you, that would probably correlate with catabolism, I would guess, and like muscle breakdown. Mm -hmm. I was wondering too, if urea production would correlate with mortality would be another thing to look at. We don't, we just don't have the data to do it here, but I don't know. Do you have like a lot of databases and things like that where you could actually do some of that calculations and working it back in those kinds of ways? Um, yeah. So interestingly, mm -hmm. we've done, um, we definitely, so we have based on like, you know, we have, we don't have ongoing database specifically for maintaining what we do with these, but then our, our EMR, as well as um, the way our system is set up, it's not that difficult to retrieve a lot of these things. Um, we do have different CRT-based uh, quality database and CRT-based databases. So, um, you know, identifying these things will not be a thing, but that is definitely a very interesting thought, especially um, in, in critical illness. Um, and I don't, too, as far as I recollect, I don't think there are any specific literatures in that particular area that have described it well. Um, and I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's a brilliant area to look into. Okay, so I don't know if anyone else has a question. I had one more question. So I mentioned, I just did this a couple weeks ago. Like it doesn't come up that often, but I had a patient who's, uh, yeah, sodium was 100, and we're bringing it up, and I did these calculations with the D5, and it worked perfectly. Like the numbers were like dead on until I got to 125 and then it just stayed there. And I turned down the D5 and turned down the D5, eventually turned off the D5. And I know they weren't getting a lot of extra fluids, but it wouldn't go up any higher. And I've been racking my brain to like, what, what happened? You know, why, why wouldn't it go up any higher at that point? Do you, do you think of what I might be missing? <laughs> Get a little bit of urine output, but not a ton. So 
So you, this is a patient that you were running D5, but with standard replacement uh, fluid? Yeah, yeah. And then- Yeah, it's bike our bags, so we kind of have to- Correct. D5, yeah. And then this, the standard replacement fluid was sodium of 140? Yeah. Okay. So, and I, so that, yeah, I mean, this had not, there was no issues with filter efficiencies, et cetera. Um, I mean, we did replace the filter at one point and that hit kind of hit at our 72 hour mark. So we replaced it. So I don't think the filter was the problem at the end. Okay. Um, Cause you know, um, yeah, I, I don't, it's hard to say, but if it's not excess, if it's not accounting for ongoing um, hypotonic uh, fluids, then it's, I, and if it's not anything related to um, dialysis efficiency, I don't know quite, I can't quite decipher what it could be without knowing more details. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it, it sounds perplexing that if, uh, if, everything, if, if everything else is in, in, in as it should be, um, it sh we, sh we should see an anticipated change. So there's certainly something that's, uh, that's happening that, that we're missing. Yeah. So which kind of brings me to, have you in real life gone back and looked at, we predicted the value would be this, it ended up being this, and you know, come up with like a precision of these kind of formulas in like a real life setting at all? Yeah, so um, we've done that, and then um, and that's when also some of the time that's also that things that led us to account for other modeling, um, mm -hmm. and so now we've uh, reincorporated some of that, and we're actually in the process of um, applying our modelings with uh, what we're seeing in a series of patients, um, and so we're in the process of recruiting data and things like that. So the most recent incorporate. So for instance, the two biggest thing that we recently incorporated, one would be the application of ultrafiltration, which was not something that we were too in tune for. We didn't realize how much of a difference it made. And number one, and number two also, um, um, the use of citrate. So now that we, because we didn't necessarily incorporate that into the into models that we were using till recently. So we've, with the addition of this, we've now gone, we're now restarting from scratch in terms of our data accrual to see um, what the real world, real world implications of these models and how, how, I guess, how well they hold true in the real world. All right, awesome. <clears throat> yeah, I, this is really fun stuff for me. I think this is really cool to go through. Yeah, no, I think you're doing like amazing ideas. And it'd be yeah. amazing that if we can. Uh, yeah, yeah, if you want to come up with something at some point, I'd love to love to work with your group. Yeah, we, we should. I'd be happy to uh, to connect with you and talk more. All right, I'll just stick my email in the chat.